world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. Did you, have, have you all watched uh, Andor? No. Well, let me um, catch you up on basic white people needs. Uh, <laughs> and, and mainstream shows. It's very good. Oh, uh, okay. It'll give, you, it'll give you hope in Star Wars again. I mean, I, I never really lost that much hope in Star Wars. Oh, good. Okay. Then, then, then all good. As long as J.J. Abrams is involved, I have hope. Well, then there we go. That's the new hope. <laughs> oh, it all makes sense. It was Cassie and Endor the whole time. I, I am excited that Ryan Johnson is getting like his own trilogy. Oh, good. We're back on that because he freaking deserves it. I, I still think, in my in my personal opinion, that The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars movie. Oh, yeah. Right there with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, well, gun to my head, I might say, well, maybe Empire. I don't know. But oh, Jedi is so Last Jedi is so good. Last Jedi might be my favorite. All of those movies might be really good, narratively, but none of those had the Praetorian fight. That's true. That was really, that really That throne dope. room, that's such a free bird moment. And yeah. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and when he just flashes his lightsaber on and off real quick, right through the right through the guard's eye. Holy oh, cow. So good. There's so many good movies. It really, that really does just feel like the John Wick moment of, of that franchise. And I, yeah. Not not that the uh, prequels had like bad fun. Because if there's anything that the prequels had was excellent lightsaber choreography. Mm-hmm. But just something something about like the, the throne room fight was just like more visceral, I think is the way I would put it. Like they felt heavier. Like that fight felt heavy. Well, and they built up to it and it's such like a holy crap. How Like what's she going to do? How is she going to get out of this one? And then I like when the... Uh, the red background, like the, you know, whatever's covering their, their viewports and stuff like that. It just starts burning. So it's like, you know, burning yeah. all around them. And then you can see the whole world. Like it's, like we're burning down the old world and starting a new one. And then running quickly back to safety, uh, checking off all the boxes of annoying fanboys online. Cause you know, <laughs> oh, we're afraid. We're afraid of making an original story. Oh, oh. God, piece of crap. So there's a they announced a new Star Wars movie and uh, Ken White, also known as Pope Hat on Twitter, said something <laughs> like, "Boy, I really hope that the new Star Wars movie includes just as many characters of non-white descent solely to tick off a particular type of fanboy." And immediately, like his the responses are all full of people who are mad about diversity in Disney. Oh my gosh. Screw all of those people. We do not need them on our team anymore. Like, which, I <laughs> just... So I, I know we should probably start talking about comics pretty soon, but <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I don't know if any of y'all saw the Patrick Willems episode on Zack Snyder. Heck yeah. It's a feature length, it's a, it's a feature it length yet, but, uh, yeah. deep dive into his filmography, which is all seven movies. Um, <laughs> but it's he does make an interesting point about how a lot of the same crowd that is like, you know, uh, go woke... Go broke, whatever that whole thing. Um, also tend to rally behind Zack Snyder because he tends to have a lot of like accidental white supremacy messages in his uh, his films. But also he was kind of ahead of the whole, well, not uh, the whole thing, right? But he was 
kind of right there at the beginning of a lot of the whole kind of diversity casting, but without making it a big deal. Like he just casted people he thought were cool. Uh, and, you know, he casted one of the most Aryan looking characters, Aquaman, with Jason Momoa, which I still think is inspired. Yeah, it's something that's really an inspired choice. It's it's mm-hmm. maybe Jason Momoa's best role. No, he was good as Duncan Idaho because he died before he could act badly. I did not like Aquaman. He could be right for the role. The movie was garbage. Yeah, well, that's true of a lot of the the DC stuff. They're actually really well cast, but the movies are just not great. I actually thought Aquaman was mm-hmm. decent. Aquaman's Aquaman's fine. I didn't. I think I had enough people talk up how fun it was that I went in and it was just fine. So even even setting expectations for kind of like mediocrity, I was still a little underwhelmed. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I went in knowing it would be bad and it was even worse. <laughs> so I just, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I still think the the best DC movie is probably Shazam. So good. Shazam, it, it's Shazam still I think, is it. really right up there. It's a little unnecessarily dark at places. But other than that... It yeah, might. but I also feel like that's kind of a side effect of the whole we have to fit into the Zack Snyder setup of the DC universe. Oh, absolutely. However, it just does not fit with what Shazam as a character was. Mm-hmm. At least not the aspects of the character that I really like. But, I mean, still enjoyable. Zachary Levi was well cast. It was it has one of my favorite endings of a superhero movie ever. Like, the big dumb fight actually has thematic resonance which is really apparently hard to do because most superhero movies don't do it ah, but shazam managed to do it so good job shazam and, and it also managed to inject a lot of fun into kind of the superhero fight spectacle moments mm-hmm. a really dumb joke but i still laughed when they're doing the whole <laughs> the whole speeches but they're like three city miles away from each other and they're just yelling and shazam can't hear them and like <laughs> that really dumb joke i was still laughing the whole time Oh, I forgot about that. That's a very funny joke. I, I need to watch that movie again. That one was fun. It's a good, yeah, it's a good time. Speaking of good times, let's have one. This is the Superhuman Registration Podcast. Hey. We are here to talk about some spooky comics for Halloween. Hold on, before we actually do that, I just want to just assume, I just want to throw this out there real fast. Duncan Idaho is the worst name I've ever read in any sci-fi. Oh, 100%. <laughs> A hundred percent. And I love that that is not a controversial opinion. Uh, anyways, Marvel Zombies. <laughs> just really, sorry, we mentioned that earlier. I just, I just really wanted to get that out there. I hate, I hate that name so much. It's so dumb. There's it's a Reddit so thread on uh, worst sci-fi character names that you've come across. Uh-huh. I, I think Star Wars might have a hard time, uh, or might be like the 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 champ. Yeah, because here's a here's a vote for Elon Sleaze Bagano. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that one. It's such a bad name. <laughs> We've read some horror stories for today. A couple of a couple of good old Halloween tales of spooks and and haunts. We've got. The Marvel Comics answer to Buffy the Vampire Slayer in Elsa Bloodstone. And we've got, of course, the annual favorite, Marvel Zombies Returns. Boy, are we in for a treat tonight talking about these. Where should we start? Should we start with Marvel Zombies? I think so. I don't have anything against that. Yeah. 
Let's do it. Let's get it out of the way. Boy, was this a Marvel Zombies comic. It's been five years we've been reading these, and each year it kind of felt like the stories were getting better and better and better, and now we're at Marvel Zombies Return. Will the trend continue? I think we'll have to wait for the discussion. So this story actually rounds back to the original cast of Marvel Zombies or some of the members of the original cast. We have a zombie Spider-Man and a zombie giant man who wind up on Earth-Z, which is a new multiversal Earth that we haven't seen before. Uh, Marvel Zombies Spider-Man swears that he's going to go straight, and he finds a perfect opportunity to do so when he is planted smack dab in the middle of what appears to be a 70s-era Spider-Man story where the kids are off at college, Harry Osborn has a mustache, Wilson Fisk and Silvermane are the main antagonists, and they are in competition to find some random MacGuffin. It doesn't really matter. Zombie Spider-Man swears he's going to stop them. However, by moving so quickly, he prompts the Kingpin to assemble supervillains to actually oppose him. So the Sinister Six show up, and Zombie Spider-Man can't control himself and completely devours them and everybody else around, thus bringing the zombie infestation to Earth-Z. Meanwhile, Ant-Man slash Giant Man slash Hank Pym, zombified, turns up at Stark Industries, where Tony Stark is just living true to type and being the absolute worst. He's completely drunk and out of control, but he is somehow wound up with a piece of technology that the Watcher had that uh, zombie Hank Pym thinks he can use to spread the hunger gospel to other universes. So Pym infiltrates Stark Industries, infects a whole bunch of people. Tony Stark can't handle things, so Rhodey picks up the Iron Man armor and kind of saves the day, but Hank Pym still absconds with the technology. Uh, then we switch over. Zombie Spider-Man recruits Zombie Wolverine in kind of a weird roundabout way to his cause to stop the zombie spread. Uh, zombie Hank Pym tries to destroy the Hulk who comes back from the World War Hulk event, or the, the Planet Hulk event. It's about to initiate World War Hulk, but he winds up getting zombified himself. And the whole thing kind of climaxes in this battle in the Savage Land where Spider-Man and his new Avengers, which include uh, zombie Wolverine and zombie Hulk and Jim Rhodes, who is not a zombie, versus a weird sort of zombified version of the Justice League, the Sentry, Quasar, uh, the Wonder Woman XP, whose name I can never remember, Namor for Aquaman. Really interesting parallel that I don't know what purpose it serves. Anyway, they have... a. Uh, Oh, don't forget Moon Knight for... Uh, oh, yeah, Batman. Moon Knight for Batman. He's even labeled the world's greatest detective. Mm-hmm. So the folks have their big scrap in the Savage Land. Spider-Man winds up being able to defeat everyone in a really clever moment that, um, yeah, kind of surprised me. Early on, it's, it's uh, established that the zombies can't infect the Sandman because they can't bite him. He doesn't, he's not made up of organic matter anymore or something like that. Uh, and Stark has developed this technology that delivers a cure for zombism through this nanotechnology, but it only works if the zombies actually ingest it. So Spider-Man uses the Sandman to deploy these nanites into the systems of the zombies. It's like actually really clever the way it's set up. Um, and yeah, that's where the story uh, kind of ends. The Marvel Zombies Returns, unlike the other uh, Marvel Zombies stories that we've read thus far, is actually, weirdly, an anthology series. 
So it's got different creative teams throughout. Writers include Fred Van Lenty, David Wellington, Jonathan Maybury, and Seth Graham Smith. And I think the art team changed from book to book as well. It, it did. I don't remember exactly who the, who the artists are, but it did switch between. So the first issue is Nick Dragata, pencil and inks, and then Arthur Sudam, S-U-Y-D-A-M, I apologize, Arthur, a penciler and colorist. The second issue is Andrea Muti, a penciler, inker, colorist. Arthur Sudam again. Uh, Simon Boland was a letterer. Then issue three, Jason Sean Alexander was the penciler and inker. Um, Arthur Sudam again. Jun Chung was the colorist. Simon Boland was the letterer again. Four, Richard Elson, Matt Miller, and Simon Boland again. Let's see. And issue five, Arthur Sudam, Wellington Alvis... Uh, Scott Hanna, Guru Effects for the colors. Um, yeah, bunch of different people. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Yeah, this one surprised me. At the beginning, I was struggling. I did not like the Spider-Man story. I, I thought it was kind of needlessly gross. Spider-Man's, yeah. like, organic webbing, because this is kind of from the era when Spider-Man had organic webbing in the comics, I think, dried up when he became a zombie, so instead of shooting out webs, he's shooting out his own veins and arteries. The body horror, which we... Oh, that. Yeah. We've kind of established that, despite the fact that we enjoy putting ourselves through this every (laughs) year for some reason, we're not actually the biggest fans of the body horror of zombie comics. And so early on, they really lean into it, uh, especially in that first issue. The second issue has Tony Stark being just, like, deeply unlikable. The third issue has some weird sort of, like, romantic subtext between Wolverine and Kitty Pryde that I'm just not okay with. I don't know that that was romantic. Well, the the issue ends with, like, a close-up on their hands dangling, like, really close to each other, like they're in high school and standing in line for prom tickets trying to decide if they actually like each other or not. I had a different, I had a much different reading on that. <laughs> but okay. I thought that was more just like, da, 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 I thought that was more bit. of like, a, we're in this together. Mm, if yeah, you I didn't so. get any romantic vibes. Because uh, Kitty was kind of originally going to be kind of what we know, like, like Jubilee, like kind of kid sister, kind of romantic interest, kind of, that was originally kind of going to be, um, as I understand it, the intention for Kitty Pride. Um, to be that kind of role for Wolverine, and then that didn't really pan yeah, out. Yeah, but in this book, I don't know. Yeah, in this book, I see more of like a pupil, a um, a mentee, you know, that kind of role. Which is the best way to do it. Um, issue four was personally disappointing to me because Sakar Hulk, like Gladiator Hulk from, from Planet Hulk, is my favorite iteration of the character. And I was mm-hmm. really looking forward to seeing how he would throw down with the Marvel zombies and he just winds up getting zombified. But then, like, the end yeah. of the story, again, it's this weird sort of, like, really clever resolution to everything. And, uh, oh, the other part of the resolution that was really clever, I forgot to mention this in the summary. What the Watcher does is he takes the Sentry, who is the last survivor of Marvel zombies in the the Z universe and sends them back to the original Marvel zombies universe because that universe kicked off when the Sentry appeared as a zombie and started infecting people. So the Watcher turns the Marvel zombies incident into a time loop. And the whole thing is like weirdly clever. And so even though the end, the beginning like rubbed me the wrong way and I just really didn't like it, the ending, I wouldn't say it redeemed the whole thing, but it certainly made it more interesting to me. The ending is a... The Century is the Song of the Storms. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, I think Are you it's... Are talking about Zelda? Yeah. 
I, th- I think it's called the bootstrap paradox. I might be wrong, but it's the whole idea that like... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, we create something or like somebody learns or gains something like in the past or in the future, travels to the past, teaches it to somebody else who will then teach it to the person in the future. So it's one of those things where like it exists in a loop, it can't exist outside of it, but what originated it, right? In the Zelda, in Legend, in the... Uh, Ocarina yeah, Ocarina time. time. I was going to say the Legends of the Ocarina. Um, <laughs> in Ocarina Time, you learn the Song of Storms as a as a as an adult from the the organ player, and you go back to the past and you teach it to them. And like, yeah. So the whole so the whole question is, where did that song come from? Like, who wrote the Song of Storms? And that's kind of like what just happened with the virus. Is where did the virus come from? Where did it originate from? We don't know. So, um, issue three. Zombie Wolverine fighting the hand. Weirdly racist. <laughs> yeah. What? Um, <laughs> when the... the when, I'm sorry, did I miss something? <laughs> he keeps calling the ninjas sushi and sashimi. Because he's going to eat them and they're from Japan. Which, uh, come on. But there, there is a... <laughs> there is a Kumail Nanjiani bit. He's, he's talking about seeing Freddy Krueger. It's like Freddy versus Jason. And Freddy Krueger... Um, kills a black girl and says, mmm, dark meat. And the whole audience, the whole audience of the theater groans. And he made fun of that. He's like, yeah, you're all disappointed disappointed in this racist killer. Like, him him killing teenagers out by the lake or whatever is okay. But, like, you don't make racist jokes while you do it. I was just reminded of that bit while this was going on. <laughs> I don't know that that... I, I guess if I was going to put that, maybe, maybe classify that as, like, tier one racism, where it's like, <laughs> it's funny, because he's a zombie, and it's Japanese food. <sighs> I don't know. I didn't think of it as, as offensive, I guess. I don't know. I don't know that I would say that it's offensive uh, because I'm not really qualified to say whether it's offensive or not. I do think it's racist. And I think we're just in an interesting place in the racism conversation where it's like, obviously racism is a thing that happens. Therefore, you should be able to depict it in fiction. But it just feels weird and inappropriate. And I don't know. I just, I had to check and see if Fred Van Lente wrote that issue. He didn't. I, t- I tend to agree with you on that. But if I was writing a, a zombie book and they were in Mexico, I would absolutely make a joke about it's Taco Tuesday. Oh, gosh. I, I, <laughs> I mean, okay. If, if, there was a zomb- if, there, if I was writing a zombie outbreak book in Utah, funeral potatoes joke would absolutely come up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it goes along with the zombie theme, funeral potatoes. There you go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I can't just... I, I don't I don't know. I, is it racist? Yes. Is my gut reaction to always say that racism is bad? Absolutely. Am I in a between a rock and a hard place right now where I want to say maybe not all racism is bad? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to leave you on this, that branch. <laughs> this is that 0.01%. It's like 99.99% of racism is bad. But a sushi joke about zombies in Japan? I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if it was funnier <laughs> but it wasn't very funny oh that's the problem yeah because i didn't laugh because i yeah. didn't remember it till till steven mentioned it mm. Mm. oh well taco tuesday <laughs> art is really interesting in this series like it's got some highs and some mm-hmm. lows that first issue as much as i didn't like it i think it looks good yeah i really liked how they were channeling a lot of that 60s spider-man it felt very Art. Ramita Jr. Or Ramita Sr. That would have been Ramita Sr., right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I think for me, issue one was a surprise, especially with how, especially how hard it went with like the body horror, especially in comparison to the rest of the books, right? Because after that, I think the worst that we get is maybe a couple people getting torn apart, but like nothing that visceral, right? Mm-hmm. In the in issue one, which is not a fan of that body horror myself, mm-hmm. but the contrast of that sort of horror and visuals against the 60s setting of spider-man of kind of a more innocent era i think works really well in upping that shock factor but i still never ever want to see the sandman exploding somebody from the inside out it's a little bit like the first way that you think of the sandman killing someone too Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you, you think about it, but you never actually want to see it. I think for me, the part where I was just like, if this is the rest of the series, I can't handle this, was the, the very end when they do the Spider-Man No More homage. Where he just like, ripped his skin off. Oh, Yeah, he just rips like, most of himself. his face yeah. and like, the body skin. Ugh. I, I had actually blocked a lot of this stuff out. <laughs> yeah, that first issue went unnecessarily hard. And in a sense, I respect it. But I also did not ever want to see that ever again. Yeah, I thought that it was better because there were homages to the art style of, you know, an older period of Spider-Man and everything. And it felt like there was more purpose where the first two Marvel zombies, it was just, let's get as gory and as disgusting as possible. This one felt like it had a tighter plot and things were happening where I was interested in, okay, how are they going to get out of this? It can, you know, zombie Spider-Man turn it around. Who's going to win, Wolverine or Zombie Wolverine? And uh, man, Hank Pym sucks, especially as a zombie. You know, all of that going on. I I also love that even as a zombie who is using, like, human brains as, like, batteries and computational power, nobody will ever forget that he's a wife beater. Yep. Even even (laughs) other zombies will not let that go, and I love it. Never let him forget. Yeah. I um, also was sad about uh, Sakaar, you know, Hulk getting zombified because i thought that they were flashing back to the original world war z is that what was happening when they and they were communicating with um uh in the last issue where they're communicating with giant man through some kind of like portal or something to where he currently was from the original world war z or had their world become world war z i wasn't quite clear on that world war z is the not world war z planet marvel like you know planet z whatever like the the last issue opens up with them in, I don't know if it's the new world they've come to. Let me go like the first caption here. Yeah, Earth Z. It's an Avengers Tower. Is this the first place they were in? Is this the current world where Spider-Man shows up and then Zombie uh, Wolverine shows up and they've you know lost the power cosmic and they're in this new world? Is that what this becomes or is that the original? So I, I it's a little bit confusing because this world, the world of Marvel Zombies Returns, is. Earth Z or multiverse designation Z or whatever, but it's not the original Marvel Zombies world. That's a different world. That's the world okay. that they came from. And so this world, the Marvel Zombies outbreak begins with Hank Pym attacking the Watcher and Spider-Man attacking the Sinister Six. And okay. it ends with the zombified Sentry getting sent to the original Marvel Zombies world and kicking off Marvel Zombies there, which ends with the zombies getting transported to a different dimension and Spider-Man coming here. So, like, it, it's the bootstrap paradox again. But it is confusing because you would think that the the Z world would be the world where the zombies originate. Just, that makes the most sense. It was a little tough to follow for me. And I kind of have to talk it through for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. Either way, uh, I, I mean, 
I was happier with this one. I thought the art was better. It was less about the gore. Um, there was still some of that, but I feel like they were able to make it work for them better where they didn't use it. They used it more sparingly than in previous iterations. Hank Pym using additional brains to do his research was disgusting, but effective. I don't know. I like that uh, we get to see Tony Stark suck and that uh, <laughs> uh, Rhodey takes over. Rhodey takes over and uses his, you know, himself as bait because he's the last one. And then, you know, they spring a trap. And I, it took me a second. I was like, oh, shoot. Spider-Man just, like, let himself be sucked up, you know, into this, you know, big sand dune that uh, Sandman creates here. You know, realizing he's got to go, too, since he's a zombie still. But, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Gross stuff. Gross stuff. Surprisingly clever. I don't know that I have more to say about it. I think I've exhausted my catalog. Although, anything else you want to say about this story? Kind of like a, like the rest of the group here. I think this is probably one of the better outings. I think the art, I think the decision to make this into an anthology where we got different types of art for some of the different stories. And I think a lot of that art really fitting with those settings and time periods works really well. Uh, because one of the things that did like, even though the issue as a whole was disappointing, I really did like the art from the World War Hulk issue. Yeah. It felt a little... I don't want to say it was like indicative of the art style used in there. I think a little similar, but uh, definitely felt more indicative of the time that World War Hulk was written, which wasn't that much earlier than, than this book, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that, that feels right. But it is kind of a nice touch just to see, you know, stuff being used thematically and stuff like that. I think the one that maybe wasn't so much indicative of the time period, but more of the energy of the issue was the art for the, for the Wolverine issue. I really like mm-hmm. the art. I really like how messy it was. Oh. And I think when they were doing some of the action sequences with like the two Wolverines and all the ninjas, surprisingly still readable, but still like messy, very scratchy. And I like, I like that. Uh, I, I was impressed with it, but that's the one issue that I was like, I don't actually care for the art here at all. Um, Wolverine stories do weirdly look like that a lot though. It, <laughs> so maybe that's just me not being the target audience for the book, but yeah. That, that is one that worked for me, but I can see how, you know, it would, it would be off putting or whatever because of the stylized, but I think it worked for zombie Wolverine and, uh, you know, original flavor Wolverine. <laughs> original flavor Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. Pre-expiration date. <laughs> post-expiration date Wolverine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, with that, should we move on to Bloodstone? If we have to. I think we do. That's what we're here for. People are almost... (laughs) Sorry, just the beginning of that. (laughs) I never got into Buffy. I I was afraid of vampires as a kid. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe I thought it was like, well, if I watch this show, no one's going to believe me that I care about killing vampires. They're just going to think I'm like, you know, staring at Sarah Michelle Gellar, so I'm not going to be fooling anyone. But people who loved Buffy and watched all of Buffy and all of Angel, they speak about it with some kind of reverence, like, oh, it's so great. I watched the pilot within the last five, ten years or whatever, and I was like, this is too 90s for me. I can't do this now. (laughs) Like, we've we've moved on. And reading this, I was reminded a little bit of that, like, ugh, you just, you know, and and I'm... I think if I had read this at the time when it came out, end of 2001, I would have been the target audience and a big, big fan. So we read Bloodstone, written by Andy Lanning um, and Dan Abnett, and penciled and inked by Michael Lopez and Scott Hanna, respectively. Tom Chu was the colorist. John Babcock was the letterer. I think that's the same creative team throughout. But basically, 
Elsa Bloodstone and her mom come back from living abroad in England after her father's died. Her estranged father dies, and they've kind of inherited this spooky uh, Scooby-Doo mansion in Boston, and come to find out that there are um, monsters hidden in it. And her father was an adventurer and has a magic lamp that um, can take you to trouble wherever it exists in the world as far as the world of monsters and mayhem are, um, are concerned. And when she puts on this choker, which we'll talk about later, um, she gets the power of the bloodstone. So she has strength and, and uh, durability and is protected from vampire bites. And um, Elsa Bloodstone fights uh, some mummies. She fights... Uh, vampires, she fights um, what are the Nosferatu vampires, and uh, meets uh, the, the, the monsters in her house. She has a Frankenstein buddy, she has a vampire buddy, and they're going to go off and do adventures. Now, on the surface, all of this seems fine. Great. This is like a Tomb Raider kind of thing. This is a Buffy kind of thing. Um, you know, sure. Yeah, go fight Dracula. All power to you. And, you know, you can learn more about your father and who he really was. And there's a, like a mystery to pull this, the threads at and, and, you know, develop later on. She, her, her mom is pregnant with a little baby brother. And so that's going to be something in the future. So there are lots of things that this sets up uh, for like an ongoing story. I think this would work really well. The, um, the execution of it made me feel like a perv the whole time <laughs> reading it. All of the covers are very, uh, what have we said, the Gale, Gale Maisie? <laughs> They're very male gazy. Nothing passes the uh, Hawkeye test. I beg, I beg to differ. Okay, a couple <laughs> of small panels. Oh, you mean you, you're okay with Hawkeye's in the same, whatever, man. <laughs> um... <laughs> If she can have her back arched, if she can be pointing her bum at the, you know, camera, as it were, and twist around so you can still see her chest, then that, that is the, the position that the artists have put Elsa Bloodstone in. Um, her, her outfit, her superhero outfit, the adapted, um, you know, adventurer clothes from her father is just straight up, like, calling it a shirt is generous. Um, it is a, like... You know, denim shirt that's open all the time, not buttoned up, and just barely tied together so it's, you know, a cleavage window all the time. And she very quickly goes from a full page, like, it's like a centerfold full page. Isn't this a little pervy? To the very next page, like, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, I like this, it's okay. And it's just, like, ugh, ew, ugh, ugh. and it's very distracting the entire time to where this, this on the, you know, on paper, sure, like, why wouldn't you, like, you know, want to read a story about fighting monsters and stuff and, you know, globetrotting, adventuring and all that kind of stuff. And it, you can see homages to, um, Indiana Jones in it, even, you know, in the covers of the last issue, as well as, um, one, um, all of the vampires are burned up by sacred light, you know, like in Raiders and as well as, you know, one guy fades into ash, like in last crusade, you know, a lot of little references there. I'm pretty sure Frankenstein is dressed up like future version of Marty McFly. You know, the, the, um, steward of the house, the family lawyer or whatever is secretly a vampire, but he's tall, dark and mysterious and interested in Elsa's mom. Like there's all these, all these things going on. There's a, a Polish grandfather who just screams at Elsa cause he knows she's a vampire. She's not a vampire, but she's of the vampire kind. Like she's, you know, hanging out with him. I, 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 he's I, screaming I, at the, at the lawyer 
who is a vampire. Yeah, they were always together. I just realized that as I said it. Yeah, he's screaming at the lawyer who's a vampire. Yeah, um, all of this is marred by the fact that anytime Elsa is in panel, you know, unless it's a tight action shot where you can only see, like, her head and her, you know, fist or whatever, it, it's just this, this, like, you know they're doing they're doing sick pinups and there's just enough artistic talent to make sure that the you know cleavage is front and center and uh, well rendered to you know uh, show off its gravity defying nature and that's about it it's too distracting it's it's um you know a shame because i think that there's something here and i i think you know obviously there are this is this the character that's in werewolf by night cuz i still have not seen it uh this is a version of that character but yes okay well and I know that there are later iterations of the character, so obviously this wasn't a you know four issues in and out and done. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's potential here, but I think that the portrayal here uh, ruins that. And also, here in the first issue, that she's lived abroad, she's lived in Europe, she lived in England, and we don't really get you know. But she's an American, but we don't really get that. And then they crank it up to eleven. So any little you know tired British phrase that you're always going to hear when it's like you know you're trying to convince someone you're British or whatever gets thrown around in the later the later issues and I get that it's tough to do accents right because if you do it too thick then it's obnoxious to read and if you don't do it enough then how are you supposed to tell that the person even has an accent this is somewhere in between where it's it's still too much and it's still annoying and there's I don't know a subtler way that it could have been done and it wasn't um that's that's what I thought what did you all think I kind of liked it <laughs> no like, there's i mean there is there is good stuff here yeah the thing that surprised me the most is having read some of the more recent elsa bloodstone stories specifically i'm thinking of next wave agents of hate uh she pops up in marvel zombies sometimes a couple of other books in there that i'm half remembering it's surprising to me how this perky teenage girl who is very clearly trying to imitate Buffy the Vampire Slayer actually has a very similar personality to the current redhead, you know, monster-fighting iteration of the character. Like, I expected there to be this, like, wild disconnect between the two, and it's not as wild as I thought it would be. Um, I fully agree with how unnecessarily distracting the art is because when the comic forgets to be sexy it's kind of enjoyable the the sexiness is weirdly distracting it's one of those sort of like she's technically legal so it's not creepy but yeah it kind of is still creepy that whole thing like is is deeply upsetting and there are some fundamental problems i think with the storytelling the way that the story is actually portrayed weird sort of writing quirks where I don't think the narrative lands the the Polish uncle does not or the Polish grandpa does not actually speak with a legitimate Polish accent it's it's this no. weird sort of Transylvanian mishmash very stereotypical so yeah like it's a mess it's it's kind of frustrating cheesecake is unnecessary and distracting and a little bit creepy the substance isn't terrible uh, you know, teenage mm-hmm. girl fights crime with her Frankenstein sidekick, her genie that transports her around the world, has to team up with Dracula to defeat a more evil vampire. Yeah. But don't tell mom, because I have a history test on Friday kind of deal. Genuinely laughed at the, like, genuinely enjoyed the, the Encanto, the living mummy team up. Uh, the, like, yeah. Ah, oh, man, just, there's so much stuff in here that could have been really good. So it's hard for me to hate it, because they, they really shot their shot. Aldo? I mean, 
similar. I have a lot of similar thoughts with it. I really liked how it kind of went for that. I also really kind of liked how I think this might have been around the same time as when the Tomb Raider live action movie had first come out. Yep. So this feels also kind of reminiscent of that kind of like exploring female, uh, you know, badass boss girl energy. <laughs> and yeah, I think my only real complaint is with the art style. Um, and it's not necessarily like the artistic choices. Yeah, the cheesecake is there, but kind of like I mentioned, it feels like they were really kind of tapping into a little bit of that Tomb Raider energy from from the time. Yeah, for me, fair. it's it's the fact that I'm not a big fan of like that 2000s Marvel house style that was really prominent in like what this book looks like, as well as like the Ultimate Spider-Man books and just a lot of the stuff yeah. that was out at the time. I'm not a fan of that art style. It's a little weird. Look, I don't know how to describe it other than like uncanny. Yeah, it's heavy, heavy inks and more cartoonized. It feels like to me, I, you know, see that in this and some of those, like the, there was like an online uh-huh. Spider-Man comic that I read, which was kind of like redoing the, the origin, you know, um, it wasn't Miles Morales, it was just Peter Parker, but very much like this where, you know, it was a little overstylized and yeah. like, I said, like the heavy inks and everything. And yeah, not very, not very good. Yeah, not, not a big fan of that era of comics art. So that was really kind of my, my major complaint with it. You know, not to kind of keep harping on the costume. I do appreciate that they that they did acknowledge how, you know, kind of sexualized the costume was from Elsa herself complaining about it. And Frankenstein's really dumb decision to be like, I, I, I made a female version of your dad's costume. And it's like... It's not a costume. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. a shirt and pants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also that part when they meet... It's the neighbor kid, right? Thomas? Tom? Something like that? Yeah. Uh, when they meet him, when they first, when they come back from, I think, their second outing, and and she's like, all right, there's going to be a secret, blah, blah, blah. Now you can stop staring at my chest. Really dumb, tired joke, but at least acknowledges the costume and how dumb and kind of ridiculous it is. That scene, though, that you just described actually highlights one of my problems with the mm-hmm. construction of the comic. Um, the illustration that I screen grabbed was actually page one of issue one where you start, like the image starts with this close-up on Elsa's face, pulls back, and she's talking to someone on the plane, pulls back further, and we see her mom, Mm -hmm. and it pulls back further, and we're outside the plane, and then it pulls back, no wait, no it doesn't, then it cuts to a completely different scene when she's getting out of a cab, all on the same page. That is very shoddy construction. And I don't remember the the page number of the scene that you were just describing, but it has a similar issue where she's like shoved the guy against the wall to like threaten him. And his line of sight is very clearly like he's looking at her chest, right? But then in the next panel, the action has changed. She's not holding him against the wall anymore. She stood back so that you can, as the reader, get a good view of her chest as well. And mm-hmm. so the action's not congruent. That's not what she was doing when that scene began. And there's no clear indication as to why she pulled away. The deliberateness of the action is not clearly demonstrated in the arc. And it's a consistent problem throughout. It's, uh, I think it was either issue three or four. There's this really brilliant, almost brilliant page where Elsa walks in on Adam, who has been decapitated and obviously very brutally beaten 
and she's horrified. And the paneling is really interesting here. It's something that I would have expected to see from one of the really ambitiously illustrated Grant Morrison comics of around the same time. Mm -hmm. But every single image, except for the main image, so they got that one right, of Adam like lying slumped against the wall with his head on the floor. Every other image on that page is like, why did you pick this angle? You're cutting off the tops yeah. of characters' heads. You're cutting yeah. off different parts of the image that would allow the reader to be connected to it. And those are deeply frustrating because it's like, especially on that page, uh, I think it's page 22 of issue three. Holy crap, that could have been so good, but just some really poor camera placement choices. Ugh, so frustrating, so frustrating. Because technically, like, the, the anatomy and the action shots and everything else, like, those seem to be really good. It's just some of these camera choices, some of these cuts that are made on the page, they're just very rough and they're very jarring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Aldo made this comment earlier about, like, Elsa Bloodstone, feminist icon. I don't remember exactly what you said, but ever since then, I've had the phrase gaslight gravedig girl boss stuck in my head. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I said like badass girl boss energy. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a bad feminist story about Elsa Bloodstone that would be called gaslight gravedig girl boss. <laughs> yeah, probably. I think, I think for me, one of my, I don't even want to say complaints. It's not really a complaint. It's just a preference. I'm so used to the more mature, red-headed Elsa Bloodstone that we see, like, in modern comics. The last time I think we read a, an Elsa Bloodstone story, or a story that I had her in there, because we, this our, I think this is our first actual Elsa-focused story that we've read, mm -hmm. was in the Jessica Jones story. Purple Daughter or whatever. That's what it was. What it was. That's the one that mm -hmm. I was thinking of. And I like her in there, because she's mature, she's kind of older, she's that same age range as Jessica Jones are both talking about important, like, mature people things while they're killing, you know, monsters just willy-nilly as, as an exercise to get rid of frustration, right? So for me, it's not that this was a bad book. It's definitely, I did definitely have to adjust to it being a different Elsa that I'm used to or have a preference for. Yeah. And I think unlike other books where we've read some sort of origin or something... I don't really see a through line between this and that Elsa, which I'm not saying they're, they're supposed to be one, but I think that's more indicative to the idea that this was definitely an experiment to try to appeal to a certain crowd at the time, and that just didn't pan out, right? Because obviously our the Elsa that we have today in modern is not really coming from this Elsa. I don't know. That's interesting, because I had the opposite response. Cause I, it's like, really? Okay. It's it, the, the through line was more present than I expected it to be. Um, I wouldn't say it's perfect. The, the more mature iteration of Elsa is definitely an improvement on the character. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the lines that this Elsa said, I could imagine coming out of the mouth of, you know, mature redheaded Elsa. So I don't know. I, I thought it was a little bit more, not perfect. Definitely needed to improve <laughs> more, but there was, there was, yeah. there was something there that was worth holding on to and pulling through. Mm -hmm. I, I I think we you and I just had different reads on that. Yeah. The Indiana Jones stuff is really good. I loved cover four for issue four. That was the only cover where it was like, yeah, this is mostly about um, boobs, 
but at least it graphically made sense because the first couple it's just it's just a mess it's a busy mess <laughs> you know the weird like fire red texture and then on top of that you know that the title itself looked bad having her you know in a in a castle and then there's a silhouette of a bridge and like villagers and stuff like that fine but her angle is like okay i'm going to point both my chest and my uh butt at you at the same time and it was just come on already. yeah just ridiculous if all of the covers had done similar to issue number four i would have probably not gone into this with as low of expectations um and i don't know maybe that actually would have hurt the series because my low expectations kind of made me like it a little bit more than i would have otherwise because it did surpass my expectations it was a little bit more than just the cheesecake yeah there was just enough more there that you know i'm glad that there are other iterations you know yep that's all I have to say. I don't have much else. To yeah, say. I don't have anything else to say about this. Woo, spooky. Oh, wait, I guess there's one other thing. Minor, minor thing. But at one point, like, the, the vampires, the Nosferatu vampires' plot is to infect other vampires with the Ebola virus so that they will bleed forever and give them an eternal source of food. And one of the vampires that they kidnap to do this is Dracula. And Elsa says... We need to rescue Dracula. Nobody deserves that fate. Not even him. And I'm like, yeah, but he's Dracula. Like, he's literally <laughs> Dracula. Like, literally. If you don't kill him now, he's going to set up a base on the moon, girl. Stop. <laughs> hey, that's my favorite Dracula. His moon-based Dracula. Not the not the uh, Dr. McNingen moon-based Dracula. He's talking about Captain Britain and MI-13 moon-based Dracula. I was talking about Dr. McNinja. How no, dare you, no. Aldo? No, is that a Ryan that's North ridiculous. thing? It's a Ryan North. No, it's not a Ryan. No, it's Christopher Hastings thing. I always mix them up. Oh. To be fair, they both got their start in comedic web comics. Very, very different comedic web comics, but still. Well, anyways, you think I would I would reference a web comic from an American? Disgusting. From an American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although, and get ready for this. You read it left to right. <gasps> Uh, you know, okay, I, I know we're joking about this. I, when I read the comics for this podcast, if I have not been reading, uh, you know, my regular subscriptions to, like, Spider-Man or whatever, I struggle so hard switching from manga to, to like, our reading. Was <laughs> <laughs> oh, that because you read way more manga then? Uh, I mean, it depends. It comes and goes. But, like, sometimes I'll, this last couple of weeks I've been reading a lot of manga. I've been reading a lot of One Piece. <sighs> One Piece is good. Yeah, so I've been reading from right to left, and then I was like, oh yeah, I have to read these comics for the podcast. And immediately, like, my instinct is to try to read right to left, and it's like, I can't. Nothing makes sense. Oh yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> think it was, oh, which which random YouTube channel was it? There's, like, one YouTuber that I follow who talks about comics in a way that doesn't, like, it's, it's a bit unusual. Some sort of nerd sync, nerd sync, I think is what it's called. Um, he had a video where he was talking about, like, pacing in comics and kind of had this offhand mention of how manga is paced differently. Like, in American comics, often the word balloons tend to be a little bit longer and you spend a lot more time reading them. In manga, the word balloons tend to be very, very small. The text is very brief. And so the pacing of manga is actually really, really quick. And... As a result of that, I don't know, I actually find myself generally gravitating towards reading the manga over watching the anime, because the anime tends to adapt like a single issue of manga into a, you know, 
25-minute episode, and that quick pacing from the manga gets lost because there's a lot of just stretched-out filler animation. One Piece is a prime example of this. The action Mm -hmm. in One Piece is so kinetic. It's so vibrant. It's so fun. And the same action sequences in the anime are dragged out and they're a lot slower paced and i don't know one piece manga is so good and the anime is fine i guess i I think it's very telling that there are several fan community projects all based around removing and kind of trimming the fat right a lot of the removing flashbacks a lot of the extended shots i mean if you want to watch one piece without all of that kind of fluff like there's a website called One Pace. <laughs> They've adapted it to be like the manga. It goes by the manga's flow instead that of rules. what the anime did. And they've done that with like Naruto. I mean, that was the whole purpose of Dragon Ball Z Kai. Like, I think it's just telling that like, you know, that's how much that kind of gets lost in that translation. Anyways, but we're not here to talk about manga to anime. Yeah, the minute that we start talking about another comic <laughs> at length, probably a good sign that we're we're ready to move on. I guess it's time to rank. Huh, let's 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 rank these comics. So, uh currently on our list, we have 214 stories. Our highest ranked spooky thing. Do we have any highly ranked spooky things? Midnight Suns, I think, would be at 180. we got to have something higher than that. We've got to have something higher than, than Midnight Suns. Okay, yeah, last time we read Engines of Vengeance. That's number 75. That might be our highest. Our spooky comics tend not to do... Oh, wait, hold on. No, we had Doctor Strange, The Last Days of Magic. I'm going to say that was pretty spooky. Uh, now... Triumph and Torment? They go to hell. Yeah, Triumph... that one. Okay, Triumph and Torment. That's our highest rank- ranking spooky. That's number 13. There you go, I guess. There we go. I feel better about that. I feel our... like there's a difference between being in hell and making a horror-themed thing, but okay. I don't know. If you see a jack-o'-lantern, it's Halloween. Yeah. But if you see a witch, you know, look around. Maybe there's more, you know. Scarlet Witch doesn't only come out on Halloween. You know, vampires. Yeah, Halloween. Big high holiday. But we have, you know, Blade. Blade doesn't only do his work on uh, on Halloween, so... You know what? Don't take this from me. I'm standing by it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fine. Triumph and Torment. Hell. Okay, fine. All right. You can have this one, bud. Well, lowest ranked spooky comic is Marvel Zombies, the original, at number 207. We really don't like these zombies books. No. This one was better, though. So where do we rank Marvel Zombies Return? Is it better than Marvel Zombies 4? I don't know. Marvel Zombies 4 is not that high. It's number 194. I think it is... But I would put it under Civil War. Civil War is is mostly as low as it is because of Stephen's ability to argue. And I, but I, the thing is, I would rather read uh, Civil War than this again. Like I, the the body horror in the first issue, especially, I don't relish revisiting that. I'd forgotten about the Sandman, like forcing himself into Spider Man's stomach, and that visual is now going to keep me awake for the rest of my life. <laughs> I I think the one that's going to keep me awake is him spider webbing his veins uh, <laughs> that was horrifying as 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 somebody who I, I, okay i don't know what the connection is because i was gonna say as somebody who has carpal tunnel I, that doesn't have anything to do with carpal tunnel <laughs> but thinking about that kind of makes me have like phantom carpal tunnel pain <laughs> oh, gosh it's all it's all happening in the same location yeah yeah all, all i know is it makes my arms start to go no no i'm thinking about just the whole everything about that. Uh, <laughs> gross. 
So gross. Oh. Well, um, I don't want to put it above Marvel Zombies 4, because I actually think I liked Marvel Zombies 4 a little bit better, but I'm also not that invested in it, so I think I'm okay with putting it at the new 194 between Civil War and Marvel Zombies 4. Yes, I would also agree with that. Okay, so my favorite thing that I get to say today is that I am 100% positive that Bloodstone is better than Civil War. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have a charmed life. I love being able to say stuff like this. (laughs) All things considered, I'm okay. (laughs) Yeah, because like, okay, the easiest comparison to make is Galacta. I was going to say Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. Yeah. Oh no, this isn't as good as Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. No. Um, But it is better than Galacta, daughter of Galactus. I... I was the only person who liked that. that that's you all. were the only person who liked that. Not even Galactus likes Galacta. Yeah, it's just you know. I know Aldo <laughs> and his Aldo and his and his waifu pillow <laughs> that he now has a Galacta outfit for. Don't need to bring her into this. She knows. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! A lot of the books in this section. I do not. I do not remember what happened in Moon Knight, Silent Night. I assume that it's a Christmas story. That's the one where he, it's Christmas time and he has uh, sex with his wife. Oh, and none yeah. of them want to be there, so he just dips. And we kept talking about how at least Batman is better in that sense. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, okay, better than that. Better than the real Batum, Battle for the Atom. I think so. Well, that's the dupe story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Jeez. Guess I whose bummy and dinner, dinner was just, like, silly. It's actually better than most of the stories right here, isn't it? I would think so. I, I guess I'm slowly going up, hoping that, like, it's not that much better than stuff, but it's, it's I don't know, consistently up there. Where I start to slow down is Ride the Pain Train and Punisher Silent Night. Or are those... Oh, right. I still didn't like those. My my ceiling was going to be Submariner versus the human race. Yeah, I, I think that's a... He briefly wins. Oh, Sam, my ceiling was going to be the Portal City of Pan, because I like this better than Longshot. <laughs> oh, shit. You know what? I had that coming. It is better than Longshot. <laughs> I agree with John's placement, though. Oh, uh, do I? Hold on. No, I'm changing my placement. Hold on. <laughs> Yeah, uh, long, long shot is a toilet, and uh, <laughs> that discount bin, David Bowie. <laughs> no kidding. If you can't figure out what your power is and what you're doing where you are, then why should I give a crap about reading your dumb book, Long Shot? What a garbage <laughs> piece of crap. I mean, I would say Long Shot is better, but I actually would read this over War of Kings. Weirdly, I would compromise at above War of Kings. No, Aldo, we were in agreement. <laughs> Two versus one, man. The triumvirate works when we, you know, agree with me. You forgot about democracy. I am I the Senate. <laughs> Aldo, do it. Do it. All right, so we're putting it at 166. No. <laughs> oh, okay. We're putting it at 165 and bumping Longshot down where it belongs. That's my vote. Still better than Civil War. All right. That's all I need. All right, 165. <sighs> <laughs> all right. Yes! That's two... A victory! It's 
two for John today. Yeah, well done. Mm, feels good. Happy Halloween to me. <laughs> it's an early Christmas present. John doesn't get his way for the rest of the year. <laughs> that was going to happen anyway. <laughs> so we want to try something a little different for our next episode. I'm curious to see how this is going to work. We're going to read three different stories. They're not single issues necessarily. I think they are this time, coincidentally, but that wasn't the intention. Uh, The goal here is actually to spotlight a single creator and look at their work over different points of their career. So we're going to focus more on the writing than on the stories themselves. And the creator that we've picked this time... Uh, unsurprising, considering John uh, is a member of this podcast, we're looking at Chris Claremont. We're going to read three different stories from three different points in Claremont's career. The first story we're going to read is Giant Sized Dracula number two, which is one of the earliest writing credits, solo writing credits, at least according to Marvel Unlimited, that Chris Claremont had. Then we're going to skip forward about a decade and read something from fairly early in his X-Men time, but he was pretty well established here. We're going to read the New Mutants special edition number one, and then we're going to conclude with the Chris Claremont anniversary special number one, which was from, I think, just this year. Uh, might be 2019 or 2021. It's it's fairly recent, within the past five years, yeah. certainly. And so, yeah, the goal here is going, we'll talk about the stories and we'll rank the stories, but really we're going to focus more on Claremont's development as a creator and see if we can... I don't know if we would necessarily get anything meaningful from it. And certainly we've read a lot more Claremont than these three stories. But I think it'll be a a fun little experiment for us to try something a little bit different than what we've usually done. You know, I did try, I I did make an effort to branch out from, you know, X-Men related things. You did get New Mutants, which is a little, it's it's in the orbit still, but you know, a little bit further out. It's in the neighborhood. And it it was, you know, his, his creation was New Mutants. You know, he wasn't... Picking up and dusting off, you know, a, a, a book from somebody else like he did with the X-Men and kind of made it his own. This is really, you know, his spinoff from X-Men, so it's, you know, his his characters there, um, if I remember correctly how those all panned out. But also, um, I, I did look for other creators that were re- well represented in the app, because there are some that, you know, had decade-spanning careers, Um but there wasn't, I looked at John Byrne, and there wasn't a whole lot of John Byrne from uh, outside different eras, so, yeah. What are y'all doing for Halloween? This is going up on Halloween. What what spooky shenanigans are you going to get up to? I'll be playing Phasmophobia with friends. Mm. I have removed all the good candy from the variety pack that we purchased, <laughs> so I'll be handing out crappy Twizzlers and whatever else is left in there. Actually, to be fair, I got the good peanut butter and chocolate out. Uh, there's still like candy candy in there so they'll have swedish fish and they'll have sour patch kids but my kids are dressing up like superheroes from an annoying kids show that i do not like but they love and they look cute in the costumes so everybody wins what's the show uh pj masks knew it was gonna be pj masks it is awful you want to hear my hot halloween candy take oh sure twizzlers are better than red vines which are better than civil war (laughs) 